The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This episode comes to you from the AUA 2023 instructional course, Contemporary Pharmacotherapy for OAB 2023, Monotherapy and Combined Pharmacotherapy to Optimize Treatment. Support for this episode comes from independent educational grants provided by Astellas and Eurovant Sciences, Inc. To claim credit for this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. All right, like the trains in Italy, we are going to run on time. Um, I hope that doesn't insult anybody, but... Uh, any of our Italian friends, it shouldn't. It should be uh, a compliment. Anyway, my name is Eric Rovner. Uh, I'm a urologist in uh, South Carolina. Um, welcome to uh, Contemporary Pharmacotherapy for Overactive Bladder 2023, Monotherapy and Combined Pharmacotherapy to Optimize Treatment. I want to welcome my faculty, uh, Professor Chapel, Chris Chapel, uh, former uh, uh, president of EAU, uh, and Alan Ween, uh, Professor and former chair at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, AUA policy states that all planners, authors, presenters must disclose their presentation, all relevant financial relationships. We will do that as each of us present. All right, there we go. So we're going to move on to the talks now. I'm going to start off with a little bit of philosophy on patient goals and expectations and overactive bladder pharmacotherapy. Those are my disclosures. So we're all familiar with the definition of overactive bladder. This is a symptom-based diagnosis, urgency, urgency, incontinence, frequency, and nocturia. We're all very familiar with that. Um, the goals for therapy for overactive bladder really depend on whose perspective we're talking about. Are we talking about the physician, us, uh, regulatory agencies, FDA, EMEU, uh, industry, uh, we want to get drugs approved, uh, or the patient? And of course, the patient is the one who's least considered in all of these. Um, because the way we measure efficacy or the way we measure outcomes, the patients don't really care. Uh, that is uh, uh, diaries and, and, and questionnaires. It's, that, that may or may not be what the patient is, is after, uh, and yet it, it is what the other three entities uh, are after. Um, but what does the patient expect or want? And we, we, we go back to Willett Whitmore, a very famous prostate cancer surgeon uh, from Memorial who said about prostate cancer, is cure necessary in those for whom it is possible and is cure possible in those for whom it is necessary, you could apply that very same thinking to overactive bladder. Uh, and let me, let me explain further. What does the patient want or expect? Uh, and if they have a reasonable expectation or they have an expectation, is it realistic? Is it achievable? And it is, necess is it necessary for the patient to be happy uh, with their therapy? And if their expectation is beyond what we can offer, and oftentimes it is, you, you see those patients in your practice, what, what should we do? Should we tell the patient, we should, should, should we sort of sandbag and, and downplay their goals and tell them they're not going to get better? Should we be very aggressive with these patients? What should we do if the patient's expectations are beyond what we can do? And here's why those patient expectations are, I think, more than sometimes we can accept in voiding dysfunction. And this doesn't necessarily go for just overactive bladder, but also BPH and every other type of avoiding dysfunction we have, incontinence, et cetera. We still don't really understand 
uh, uh, physiology of overactive bladder, and, and Chris Chappell is going to talk to you in great detail and give a great talk on this shortly. Uh, what is the etiology underlying overactive bladder? Is it myogenic? Is it neurological? We're, we're not sure. Are there urothelium factors? Probably in some patients. Are there behavioral factors? Certainly there are. And most likely it's a combination of all of these, but we don't really understand that. And what we also don't understand is if we, if we treat successfully a patient with overactive bladder today, what happens tomorrow and the next day and the next? Because the patient continues to age. What is the natural history of overactive bladder? Well, the Urinary tract is not like cheese and fine wine. It does not get better with age. It either stays the same or it gets worse. We know that. Detrusor overactivity increases. Detrusor underactivity increases. And comorbidities increase with aging. Those comorbidities are legion. And all of them, the ones listed here, all of them lead to some degree or can lead to some degree of bladder dysfunction. So even though we're going to talk about drugs that treat overactive bladder, all these factors extrinsic to the bladder also contribute to lower urinary tract symptoms. And that's perhaps why we don't cure a whole lot of patients. Overactive bladder is multifactorial. It has to do with lots of other factors extrinsic to the bladder that we don't treat with the medications uh, like this list here. So what do patients expect? Is this what they expect? Do they expect after I give them one pill they're going to be cured forever? Um, I don't think so. Um, some of them may think that. Uh, I think they're, they're not particularly uh, realistic. Um, do they expect to have complete resolution of their frequency, urgency, nocturia, incontinence, no adverse effects at no cost and improve their quality of life or not? Um, what is a perfect result for overactive bladder? That's it. That's a perfect result for overactive bladder. Patient's dry, has no new voiding symptoms, uh, resolution of all existing symptoms, doesn't cost anything, and has no adverse effects. Well, we're going to spend the next hour and a half talking about a bunch of drugs, and none of them, none of them have that list of, of, of cure permanently. The realities of overactive blood drug therapy, uh, doesn't matter which drug you choose, have low cure rates, modest reduction in urgency frequency, modest reduction in urgent continence, and they all have some degree of adverse events, and they are a variable cost. The ABC trial, perhaps uh, one of the best trials done for overactive bladder, compared uh, Botox on a botulinum toxin A uh, to an anti-muscarinic, and the primary outcome uh, was urgent continent episodes at six months. The reason I'm showing you this is not to re reiterate old, uh, uh, old data. The reason I'm showing you this is the, the, the distinction between what the patients think they're getting better and the way we measure it. And what I circled here are the dry rates for the ABC trial for both groups, the, the Botox arm and the, the drug arm. And what you see are abysmal dry rates. Right, so these were patients with five or six incontinent episodes a day, and their dry rates were 20%, 25%, regardless of which arm they were in. So they were fairly abysmal uh, response rates, as we would say, cure. And yet, when you ask the patient, are you better, uh, the, the response rates on the PGII very much or much better were well in excess of 50%. So there's some dichotomy, there, there's some difference between what we are measuring and what the patients think is correct or, or, or better. And, and this is well documented in our literature. Uh, patient goals have limited correlation with conventional measures of overactive bladder, even though we're going to spend the next hour and a half talking to you about conventional measures. Uh, patient goal achievement, whether the patient feels they're, they're, they're better, shows no correlation with objective measures that we measure. 
So what is the patient actually asking for? And this is some research that Linda Brubaker had done a number of years ago using a questionnaire called SOG, and I urge you to think about this. Uh, the, the concept is that the patient actually determines their own goal. They come to see you, uh, you say uh, they have overactive bladder, and, and you say to the patient, well, what do you want to get better at? And uh, some might be, they want to be dry, some might want to reduce their nocturia, some may want to reduce their frequency or their urgency because it's disturbing, but ask the patient. And this, this type of research has been applied to multiple different areas in pelvic floor uh, therapy, uh, surgery, behavioral therapies, and drug therapies, uh, and it turns out to be fairly useful. We actually did it, uh, uh, we, we applied it uh, to the phase two overactive bladder, uh, 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 phase two studies in Botox for neurogenic detrusor overactivity. Uh, and basically we asked the patient, uh, what's your goal of therapy for Botox uh, in this neurogenic detrusor overactivity trial? And the details are not particularly important. What is important is that when you actually ask the patient when they, what they wanted to get better at, and they could choose any of these uh, uh, choices, be dry, reduce incontinence, reduce other urinary symptoms, improve quality of life, what you see is this very big difference between placebo and drug. So when the patient actually, actually uh, chooses their own outcome, they're actually much happier. They're much better. So I urge you to, to think about that. So just, uh, I'm sorry to bore you with five minutes of, of overactive bladder philosophy, but uh, if you take home that overactive bladder is complicated, the traditional measures that we use in regulatory uh, uh, agencies, uh, industry, um, uh, are, are perhaps don't capture what the patient wants. Communication is the key and understanding your patient goals. So I'm going to move on and briefly talk about the uh, AUA um, uh, um, overactive bladder guideline. Uh, Chris is going to talk about the EAU guideline uh, shortly. Uh, I will tell you that everything I'm about to tell you is uh, about to be updated. Uh, I'm part of the next AUA overactive bladder guideline. We just started revising this guideline. So the revised overactive bladder guideline will be probably presented at next year's AUA. We're just in the process of doing the literature search from the last AUA guideline. The chair of that committee is Ann Cameron from Michigan. So the OAB guideline has been around now for more than 10 years. The original OAB guideline uh, was from 2012 and consisted of 151 articles from over 5,000 articles. Revised in 2014, revised in 2019, and again now will be revised in 2024. The original guideline had 22 statements, only three of which were standards, and back then you could only have a standard if there was enough evidence-based literature to make a statement that the risks or harms were much, much greater than the alternative. So only three standards came out of the 22 statements, uh, and that's perhaps an indictment of our overactive bladder literature in general. Nevertheless, in 2019, there was an update. All the 2015 and 2012 statements remained essentially unchanged, and the major updates in 2019 were uh, a non-hierarchical approach to overactive bladder treatment, that means that instead of starting in a patient with all patients starting with behavioral therapy and then all patients moving to pharmacotherapy and then all patients moving to third-line therapy, the update basically said that if your patient desires to move on to third-line therapy, that's okay. They don't have to fail everything else before moving on to second or third-line therapy. Um, and then they added a category called fourth-line therapy, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. So uh, this briefly two-minute overview of the AUA guidelines, for those of you not familiar with it, the diagnosis of overactive bladder 
consists of all you need is a history, a physical, and a normal urine analysis. Uh, there are additional tests that you could order if you wanted, a urine culture, post-forward residual, bladder diary, symptom questionnaires, but they're not required. And then on the initial evaluation of an uncomplicated patient, you do not need to do cystoscopy, urodynamics, and renal and bladder ultrasound. They're not needed. Um, and then patient education. Uh, dating way back to the first guideline, uh, no treatment is an acceptable choice for some patients. I think that's very wise. Some patients just want to make sure they don't have bladder cancer. They don't need a drug. Uh, they don't need uh, sacral neuromodulation. They just want to be reassured. First-line treatments are behavioral therapies. You're familiar with those. Uh, they can be combined with anti-muscarinics. The guideline does not have any preferential treatment for any of the oral pharmacotherapies. There's no hierarchy or preference for any of these, but there is a class warning for both beta-3s and anti-muscarinics in the frail, elderly, and demented patients. ER formulations, extended release formulations, should be preferentially prescribed over IR formulations when available. And in 2015, uh, beta-3 agonists became available in the U.S. They were not previously available, so they became an option in 2015 and remain an option uh, today. Uh, again, same caution in the frail elderly, similar to anti-muscarinics. Um, in the 2015 update, uh, the, the definition of an adequate trial of pharmacotherapy and behavioral therapy was uh, outlined. A pharmacotherapy approach should be given about four to eight weeks of drug, uh, and behavioral therapy about 8 to 12 weeks, which actually makes sense uh, if you think about muscle physiology and how pelvic floor physiotherapy should work and muscle physiology, 8 to 12 weeks, 3 or 4 months should be a minimal trial for behavioral therapy. All the third-line therapies remain the same. Uh, we'll have to see whether on our latest update uh, that will be the case. And then the fourth-line treatments were added at the last uh, uh, guideline. They include indwelling catheters uh, in refractory patients, including transurethral suprapubic, and, of course, augmentation, uh, cystoplasty or urinary diversion, now rarely ever used uh, for severe refractory over, uh, and complicated overactive bladder. That's the uh, current algorithm. Obviously, you can't read it, but it, it'll be on the slide set uh, when you uh, get your slides if you download this set of slides. Thank you very much. That's our lovely bridge in Charleston. I'm going to turn the uh, lectern over to uh, Professor Chapel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric, and it's a great honor and pleasure to be speaking here today. Um, I think it's often quite sad that we're looking at the same information in many ways our organization should be working closely together because it's the same data. The AU guidelines are updated every year, but in this area there is very little new change, to be honest. All the guidelines, the AUA guidelines likewise, are based on the Cochrane principle of PICO. You look at the population, the indication, and the comparators. The only difference with the AU guidelines is they use a grade process. You don't have ABC for information. You either have it as good or weak, strong or weak. Okay, these are my disclosures. And just to mention, as you can see, the guidelines have been updated every year. They are actually accepted now by numerous worldwide bodies. 74 organizations worldwide use them as their standard. And certainly, if you look at our guidelines, and by the way, they're freely available on the web. You don't have to be a member of the AU to download it. If you just go on to EAU guidelines and then whatever topic you want, the whole of urology is covered with a, an up-to-date guideline. If you look at the history, physical examination, diaries, urinalysis, and all the other points, just as you've heard from the AUA guidelines. And this is the format. 
As you can see, basically, if you're looking at symptom, symptom scores, there's strong evidence suggesting their use. Likewise, if you're looking at recommendations, your analysis, of course, should be used. And clearly, uh, the evidence for looking at post-forwarding residual is, is very strong because, of course, you can have storage symptoms or incontinence if you're not emptying your bladder. That goes without saying, doesn't it? If you look at the frequency volume chart, I don't know how many people use this. Everybody who works in this area recommends the use of this. And you can't practice modern urology without a bladder diary. How do you know if somebody has got nocturnal polyuria? Except by guessing. How do you know it's at more than a third of 24-hour production? You hear more about that later. And how can you actually work out the functional bladder capacity? How can you actually work out the voiding efficiency? In other words, what the residual means relative to the functional capacity, which is the volume voided plus the residual. I like to call it the voiding inefficiency, not efficiency, because 40% is the optimum, and the higher it goes, the worse it is. So it should be inefficiency, if you ask me. And of course, when you're thinking about anything to do with the urinary tract, you need to think about a normal functional capacity. I've defined below how to measure a functional capacity. And, 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 and a reduced functional capacity, which is obvious. And of course, we always have to think of other conditions such as CIS and so on. And then, of course, the reduced anatomical capacity. Now, if you've got somebody who's got very severe symptoms and obviously you'll be cystoscoping them, it's very useful to measure the capacity under an anaesthetic. Because if it's less than 250 mils, in my experience, whether it's with painful bladder syndrome or whether it's relating to post-ketamine disorders, then the likelihood of conservative management is very poor of it being successful. So if you move on now to looking at pad testing, I don't think many of us use that routinely, but it's a valuable adjunct and there's good evidence for its use. Of course, biomarkers have been used. You may see that in the literature. But to be honest, it's a lot of nonsense, most of them. Bladder wall thickness, of course, you're talking about millimetres and depends how distended the bladder is. And, and nerve growth factor and others have been dis, uh, basically found not to be something you can measure. There aren't any actual tests uh, which have been developed for looking at NGF in the urine. And there was a whole plethora of papers. And if you wonder why they've all disappeared, uh, that's the reason why. One particular study where they f was a company, indust an industry-sponsored one, where they actually froze samples. They found there was a 10 to 3-fold difference in the same sample when measured. So if you like, that was a, a no-brainer. So if you actually look about at other aspects like do not formally use biomarkers, there's strong evidence for that. Okay. So if you come on to urodynamics, certainly that is a very valuable, uh, valuable adjunct. But remember, urodynamics is a frequency volume chart, a careful history, the post-forming residual, and then pressure flow studies. And you have to use these according to the individual patient, and you always have to ask yourself how it's going to alter your management. Uh, so indiscriminate use of this is not necessarily useful. And secondly, badly carried out urodynamics by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing with a lot of artifact, is it actually can be worse than not doing it at all because you may go on the, uh, the wrong track. And certainly in my country, despite people's enthusiasm, when we do central red studies, 30% of the urodynamics have to be discarded because of poor quality and methodological errors. So I think it's fair that good, well-conducted urodynamics can be very useful. So coming on to disease management, of course, uh, we've already heard from Eric the importance of 
behavioral techniques, fluid restriction and so on, uh, and the, the, the overall disease management. And as I say, you can look this up, pelvic floor training, if you've got mixed incontinence, for instance, and of course, if you're coming on to other things such as electrical stimulation, the evidence for that's weak. If you look at the various drugs, you can see that the EAUs looked at the, tried to compare them, and essentially, the anti-muscarinics are all very similar. And we did a, a study a few years ago looking at them, and it all depends on what you're looking at. Uh, but overall, if you're using this type of approach, there's no doubt the anti-muscarinics are more effective than the beta-3 agonists. Essentially, all the anti-muscarinics are very similar. There's a lot of marketing involved. There may be difference in side effects. And the same goes for the beta-3 agonists, to be honest. A class effect, and there may be nuances in terms of toxicity, potentially minor toxicity, drug-drug interaction, and so on. So there's good evidence that anticholinergics are certainly effective and a standard of care as first-line therapy. Uh, and, of course, we are all familiar with the fact that in the elderly, particularly you have a problem with mentation, post-stroke, dementia, and so on, the anticholinergic load, if you've got a diminished cerebral function, may have an impact. But 30 years down the line, nobody's been able to crack whether there's a difference between the different drugs, although certainly some of them, there seems to be evidence that they're possibly safer than others. Mirabegran and beta-3, and of course Vibegran, both are, within the AU, suggested as first-line therapy. There's strong evidence that they're effective, uh, and certainly nobody's done a head-to-head -head comparison directly to date. So if you're looking at alternatives to pharmacotherapy, you can see there's all the other aspects, bladder training, uh, tubular nerve stimulation, which is thought to be slightly better maybe than uh, drug therapy, but very labor-intensive if they're having to come up to the hospital regularly, and certainly strong evidence uh, that you should be uh, obviously looking at carefully at the patient and assessing them appropriately. What about drugs for stress incontinence in Europe? Duloxetine is licensed but rarely used because of the side effects, because of its central mode of action, even though the companies introduced it tried to persuade everybody who was acting on honest nucleus at the sacral um, spinal level. But seeing a higher dose is used for stress incontinence and used for depression, I'll leave you to make your own decision as to whether it's acting centrally or not. And certainly the side effects are those you'd accept from a centrally acting drug. As estrogens, um, certainly there's some evidence that they can be effective dealing with urgency in the postmenopausal female. There is no evidence that they help with stress incontinence. And of course, estrogen therapy is, can be invaluable in those consequences with, if you've got a chronic problem postmenopausy with urinary infections. It, there's good evidence from gynecological literature can be effective for that. Mixed incontinence, again, it's a matter of clinical judgment. And the evidence is fairly weak, except for anticholinergics and possibly the beta-3. But again, it's for predominant storage problems rather than stress urine incontinence, in other words, the OAB symptoms. Desmopressin, we've already heard about. There's concern about, as you'll hear more later, about possible side effects, uh, particularly hyponatremia. But potentially, if you ca carry out careful assessment of the biochemistry after a week after starting it, uh, and, and then a month later, and there's a, you pick out the patients who are susceptible. To remember that women are more susceptible to hyponatremia than men because of renal 
management of it, but it can be very helpful with nocturnal frequency. But of course, with polyuria, you've got to be careful not to overload them. On a botulinum toxin, remember that the various Botox agents uh, are, have a different structure. And of course, this is Botox on a botulinum toxin, good evidence for its use. A sacral neuromodulation, likewise. And of course, refractory overactive bladder. You need to uh, th think about other aspects, but certainly there's good evidence that not rushing into using laser and so on on the vagina or on the base of the bladder until we have more evidence. Augmentation cystoplasty, rarely used nowadays, but can be, and this would fit into the fourth line the AOS mentioned, uh, can be invaluable if you've got a neuropathic patient, particularly if you, Botox will wear off. And so the worry is if you may have a silent bladder that's going off uh, with a high uh, pressure. And so that's to be borne in mind. But of course, we have to bear in mind that there are the side effects of augmentation cystoplasty. So I think I'm just about on time. Uh, and I'll move on to the next talk, if you can bear putting up with me for another 20 minutes. I'm just going to reset that. Okay, so, physiology. Eurodynamics is now 50 years old. That's when the International Content Society was founded in the UK, and Turner Warwick, who developed Eurodynamics at the Middlesex Hospital, got the idea from Earl Miller at UCSF. And the, the reason I'm mentioning this is the International Constant Society was both multidisciplinary and also it was trying to deal with terminology. And it's very sad, 50 years down the line, we still haven't got it cracked. We still believe that you can make a diagnosis based on symptoms. We still use the terms, as I'll show you, in different ways. Again, these are my disclosures. And this is what was described by Turner Warwick. The bladder is an unreliable witness because the symptoms are not disease-specific. Patients report them in different ways and we all come up with our own interpretation, don't we? And of course, lonely tract symptoms and BPH, a term still used. What is BPH? What actually brings patients with BPH to see you? It's usually storage symptoms, isn't it? getting up at night, getting caught short, going out to the shopping mall. It's not actually they're going into retention. Only about 2 to 3% of men go into retention over a five-year period, as we know from the VA study. And, of course, we then talk about voiding dysfunction, don't we? But we actually, many people talk about it when they mean storage dysfunction. Failure to store, which is overactive bladder. Alan Wien was the key person in actually developing the concept of overactive bladder as a non-specific symptom complex. Not a diagnosis, but a way of categorizing patients. Then, of course, you've got the voiding dysfunction, delay, poor stream, failure to empty, haven't you? But if you think, if you say voiding dysfunction when you mean storage, don't you see how confusing that is? Because at the end of the day, and this is a pivotal slide. Look at it, men and women. Can you see any difference in the frequency of the symptoms between the two sexes? And that, I'm sorry the boxes haven't come out in different colours, but just take it from me that men and women are shown there next to each other for each of the symptoms. There's absolutely no difference. And women clearly don't have prostates, and men certainly don't have problems with vaginal prolapse. So if you think you can diagnose somebody as having BPH because they're male on symptoms, without further evaluation, you can see the problem. 
So it's an, it's an empirical diagnosis, overactive bladder, and it's not the same as bladder overactivity, as I'll show you. An urgency, which is a sensory symptom, which is actually perceived in the brain, and we all experience that. If you've had a lot to drink and you get home, put a key in the door, and you have to make a rush for it. But of course, with overactive bladder, that's common. That's what drives it. There has been some terminological inexactitude because the FDA understandably said you couldn't easily measure it, and people therefore talk about urge incontinence. But that's a misnomer because urge is normal. That's a normal sensation, whereas urgency is a pathological symptom. So you may wonder why these strange Europeans talk about urgency incontinence whereas, and not urge incontinence. That's the reason. And that's why the ICS has defined it that way. And of course, if you go more often, you pass less each time you go. If you're doing it at night, it's nocturia. And of course, in a third of women with severe overactive bladder, they may have incontinence. And if you look with me in men, and of course men rarely get incontinence unless they've had a, had a radical prostatectomy or unless they've got chronic retention with overflow, then you can see that even in men, as they're getting older, you've got more overactive bladder symptoms in women. And that sort of fits what we know clinically, doesn't it? So, urgency is a sensation, and all sensations are perceived in the brain. This leads on to the next discussion. What is the target of therapy? Now, a lot of people think it, the target is the bladder, don't they? But please reflect on that, and I hope I can prove to you it isn't the target because that's what we know now. We may be wrong, I may be talking nonsense. And of course, urgency is different from the normal urge to void. Then of course, a fly in the ointment is you get onto bladder pain syndrome or so-called interstitial cystitis. Again, it's a symptom, but it's a pain symptom, isn't it? Which causes frequency, although there can be overlap of the two conditions because they're not diagnoses, they're descriptions. And we're all familiar with that. We mustn't forget, of course, in men, if you've got significant storage symptoms, it affects your quality of life, and there's no doubt that the worsening of lonely tract symptoms you see along the bottom, and you can see um, never, mild, moderate, severe, are also related with increasing age to the level, as Ray Rosen showed many years ago, of erectile dysfunction. So, of course, there is an overlap there. Ty Halt was one of the founders of the ICS from Denmark, and Hart's rings, and this is a modification of that. And the idea here, as you can see, this is looking at men, and of course, as we all know, a proportion of men increasing with age get histological BPH. But then within that, they may actually have obstruction, BPO, they may have underactivity, they may have other causes for the symptoms, whether it's CIS or something else, and you can see, therefore, you have to bear this in mind. So if you want to say just because you're male and you've got symptoms, you've got BPH, you see you might be missing the boat. And of course, around every, every set of symptoms, you have to think of all of the other aspects, the endocrine factors, the heart, the kidneys, and everything else that's going on, uh, and bear that in mind. And if you do the same for women, of course, here you have a similar scenario. Of course, in women, with a weak outlet, uh, because their bladder necks in 40% of nulliparous women aren't, aren't sort of, don't provide continence. Men, of course, have a bladder neck to prevent retrograde ejaculation of, or emission of semen, 
and a prostate. And of course, the distal sphincter in men is akin to the urethral sphincter in the female urethra. But of course then, of course, women, you're talking about stress incontinence, urgency incontinence, and of course, all the other conditions that can affect bladder behavior, just as in men. And of course, you've got all of the other factors, neurological, renal, and so on, as I've mentioned for men. So the strength of a diagnosis, it, it helps you to understand what the patient is concerned about. The weakness is if you start using a symptomatic diagnosis as the ultimate diagnosis, which dictates all of your treatment, without actually considering other factors, then you might come into trouble. Are there two types of afferent sensation? Yes, there's pain and, of course, there's urgency and, the, and potentially bladder overactivity on urodynamics. Painful bladder syndrome, of course, as you know, we don't really understand why people get it. Thought of a gag layer being absent in the bladder, as well as maybe mucosal abnormalities, and of course that's why we use intravesicle installation of hyaluronic acid and so on to restore the gag layer. Urodynamics, just to emphasize, if you carried it out without standardization of equipment or technique, you could have problems. And we're all familiar, this is just showing the principle of uh, the urodynamics, which you're familiar with, and video urodynamics from the Latin video videri to see, nothing to do with a video machine, all to do with the use of contrast, and of course a classic case of detrusive overactivity. As you know, there is no specific pressure rise to define detrusive overactivity, it's a pattern you see. They used to use 15 centimetres water because it was felt that that was just getting above the filtration pressure of the kidneys. Uh, subsequently, from the Whitaker test, that was uh, shown maybe not to be the case. So what are we talking about from a functional point of view? Of course, the terminology has been defined by the International Continent Society, uh, overactive bladder, urgency with or without urgency incontinence, usually with frequency nocturia. I've shown you the diagram. And of course, the true overactivity, shown urodynamically, can be in a patient with no neurological disease, although most idiopathic, but doesn't mean they haven't got a latent neurological disease. And of course, it increases with age, potentially, because all of us, as we're getting older, start getting neurological dysfunction. And you can see this is data from Bristol, showing you can see in women, pink, men in blue, not wishing to be sexist, but you can see that women who are incontinent, only 58% have overactivity, even though they've got urgency incontinence. And in men, of course, with the, the strong outlet, it's 90% uh, it's, it's of men who have incontinence have detrusive overactivity. And for dry, you can see it's 44 and 66. So which definition of bladder overactivity? A symptomatic diagnosis? Sure, if it helps in starting treatment. I'm not suggesting you do urodynamics on everybody to start with. You only do it if you're trying to find out more in the more complex cases. Ambulatory urodynamics is a misnomer because it's not really ambulatory because the catheter keeps falling out the rectum. So it's actually walking around a laboratory with catheters in. And of course, 90%, 80 to 90% of normal people will have increased pressure rises because urodynamics has never been categorized for ambulatory, only for the laboratory uh, provocation systometry. And so you can prove if you can't find urodynamic overactivity, people do ambulatory, find it, and then treat the patient, which always strikes me as rather silly, because they should have done it anyway. If you're then looking at the function of the detrusor, there's no doubt that it is cholinergically mediated. 
I'll come on to animal studies in a minute, but it is a council of desperation often, trying to use an animal to predict outcome in the human. Firstly, because the models which are used are not anything to do with the human situation. Putting acetic acid or cyclophosphamide in a human bladder would cause a hell of a problem. Putting in an animal bladder certainly doesn't recreate overactive bladder. And certainly, if you're looking at the innovation of the animal bladder, the rodents and so on, they have a non-adrenergic, non-cholinergic innovation. So, of course, the Dutrouz is cholinergic and innovated, and it seems sensible that's the target for therapy, isn't it? But is it? Certainly over the years, many of us working in the field of pharmacology have come to the view it's not as simple as that, and it may well be the sensory system. And don't forget that the innovation of the rectum and the bladder is the same. You all see that with Cordoaquina syndrome, where you get constipation and underactive bladder. And if you look at this, you can see this is work from um, Belgium, and they showed that if you've got rectal distension, it increases the sensation of bladder filling. And of course, conversely, if you've got vesical distension, it decreases the sensation of rectal filling. There was talk a few years ago from Coolsit and others about micromotions, but it's largely been disproven because if you take a non-innovated, non-perfused guinea pig bladder like here, of course it'll go, it'll do things like this because it's dead. It's got no blood supply and so that doesn't seem to be entirely sensible. Now this is an important slide. Were you aware that the urothelium has a metabolic rate four times that of the detrusa muscle? Were you aware that the urothelium releases neurotransmitters when you stretch it? Now you're familiar with physiology. If you scratch yourself, you get a white line and then you get a flare antidromic transmission. So as you distend your bladder, the principle of receptive relaxation is you also get intrinsic production of various mediators that actually act locally to prevent the bladder becoming, of contracting. One of them is nitric oxide. Now, as you know from your physiology, nitric oxide is the best relaxant. Okay, you can say chapel's talking rubbish, but there is an animal model using blood clot, which causes intense overactivity in a rat bladder. Now, I'm afraid all of us have seen clot retention, haven't we? But is it retention, or is it a poor patient after an operation who's got clot in the bladder and it's intensely overactive, isn't it? They're getting a lot of pain and discomfort. You wash out the blood clot and they all get better, don't they? And that's because it's absorbing that nitric oxide and the bladder becomes dysfunctional. An example. If you actually look at this, you can see that there's a dense suburothelial plexus, and you also have these things which were only described about 20 years ago, the interstitial cells, like the interstitial cells of Cajal. Now, those interstitial cells have a cholinergic innovation. The sensory nerves also have a cholinergic innovation. So bear that in mind. It's not just the detrusimus. And this is a slide from Carl Eric Anderson. Of course, the detrusor muscle is cholinergic, it's important. You've got the non neuronal release of all of these neurotransmitters, and you've also got those subureothelial nerves. You can see a sensory nerve there, which is acting under the influence of acetylcholine. And you can see these subureothelial sensory nerves, and you can see that it's quite a complex setup. So when you hear about people trying to tissue engineer the bladder, when you're dealing with this complexity of different structures, 
you can see it's nonsense because unless you can recreate and innovate a huge number of different types of cell, you can't bioengineer something. All you can do is produce an, an epithelial substitute. And the, the study which did report that in the Lancet came to that conclusion. And these are the interstitial cells. You can see they stain up for uh, ligands, and this is McCloskey, who is um, basically working in Belfast. She's a, a leader in this, and you can see that's acetylcholine on these cells. So it isn't limited to just focus on the periphery. Let's think about the center. Were you aware that if you put capsaicin, which is a, you know, like a chili, but 16 billion times stronger, into the human bladder, it causes retention for six months. Now, capsaicin only acts on sensory nerves. It's extra, extra, extra hot chili. It degranulates explosively sensory nerves, and that puts the bladder totally into retention. Another drug is ricinofrotoxin, uh, which is even more, more potent, and you can see that, that, that they tried to develop that for clinical practice, but it was absorbed to plastic, so it never actually went anywhere. So let's think about what happens from the bladder. As you're sitting there, sensations going up to your brain, to the periacroductal grey matter, and it's reaching the cortex. All the time that you're sitting there, that's happening. And what's happening is that the cortex is having an inhibitory effect on the pontine micturition centre. Anxiety, coming up to exams, dementia, frontal strokes, ageing, all have an effect on that cortical control. And when you give permission to void, which is when you get that threshold for urgency when it comes to your perception, if you think about it, if you, think, you can think, feel how full your bladder is, can't you, if you actually think about it. But when you decide you have to go, you've got to go if you've got urgency. And of course, then the Pontine Micturition Centre can void, leading in normal situation to coordinated emptying the bladder, contraction of the bladder and relaxation of the sphincters, so you don't get the sphincter dysenergia. And you've been able to show with studies looking at functional MRI that you've actually got parts of the cortex light lighting up. But the trouble with these studies, difficult, is because patients are lying flat in an MR scanner and trying to void, and it's not a physiological situation, putting aside the bashful voiding and so on. So what are the potential targets? I don't think drugs with a central action are going to be particularly effective because of the side effects. We'll hear more about that later. Drugs, primarily looking at the mucosa signaling. Again, very complex, uh, but possibly, and certainly there you're looking at Botox and other agents which you inject in that area and at the subureterial plexus. So basically you need to think about these different components when you're trying to treat the patient. And of course there have been many drugs that have come along can think of over a dozen which have gone through to phase two and then failed because they've been based, and there's one recently, a purinergic agent, based on fantastic animal studies showing great potential effect, but of course, as I've said already, that doesn't equate with man. And certainly what you're looking at, if you're looking at the feedback locally, is you've got activation of sensory neurons and you've got chemical neurotransmission I've mentioned locally, you've got the urothelial effect, and you've got this sort of situation where you've also got these non-neuronal release of these neurotransmitters. So there are various drugs, and of course if you're looking at the myocyte signaling, we're all familiar with the use of very different agents. Uh, PD-5 inhibitors are potentially acting more by the sensory system, 
um, beta-3 agonists on the sensory system. As you've seen, the marketing says, <coughs> because the FDA and the other regulatory agencies say that a drug such as a 5-alpha, uh, 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 such as a beta-3, relaxes the bladder. But does it increase residuals? So is it acting on the detrusor to relax the bladder? Of course it's not. It's acting to relax the bladder by the central pathway. How does sacral neuromodulation work? Does that work on the bladder? How about posterior tibial nerve stimulation? Can you see why I'm saying what I'm saying? Okay, you can say Botox works on the bladder. Of course it does. But when I did the phase two studies, and Eric's done the same studies, and phase two, you basically see that you've got a threshold, 150 units. You go above that, you get more retention, no greater effect. So it's a bystander effect, the effect on the bladder muscle. And none of these animal studies have ever produced anything therapeutic in this field. Viagra, the volunteers got erections in a drug, with a drug designed for pulmonary hypertension. Beta-3, failed anti-diabetic drug, anticholinergic atropine, 5-alpha reductase, Dominican Republic, people, congenital defect. Okay, so sacral modulation, uh, Rick Schmidt, I'm just mentioning, involved in that, as you can see with um, Emil Tanago there, the patent for Botox, which he took out when he was at Denver, and certainly there's clear evidence that what I'm saying is, relate, is reasonable. This is work from our lab using a PITH model where you're measuring real-time gave Botox and you can see the reduction in sensory neurotransmission over the course of a short period of time using Botox. Of course, if you look at the beta-3, they act on sensory mechanisms and that's been clearly shown. They don't increase residuals. So... I will leave you now just to say that what we know is what we know, but there's an awful lot, and this is the slide from Alan, the Journal of Negative Data. Do you actually see the negative data with all of the new treatments we have? You always see a greater plum as they introduce a new treatment and then they disappear, don't they? It's the same in this field. Don't be misled and think you can diagnose a patient just on a history. Don't think you're just trying to make the bladder stop contracting when you're treating them, because that increases residuals. Of course it's an effect of anticholinergics. Of course it's an effect of Botox. But you'll also be seeing with Botox, a paper that's in preparation at the moment, based on the pivotal studies, that it's age-related, the retention. Around the age of 40, it's about 1% in the paper. Uh, and so certainly, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't counsel patients about ISC. But just bear in mind that you're looking at a sweet spot to hit the sensory bit, because urgency and overactive bladder are sensory-driven problems. Thank you very much. We'll now have uh, Alan Wien uh, present on uh, monotherapy uh, for overactive bladder. So oh, good afternoon. Okay, so let's treat with pharmacotherapy. Potential conflict of interest advisor. These are all good sources. Now you have all the slides. There are two slides that I added a few weeks ago that you don't have. I'll tell you which ones they are, but you have all the rest. Documentation for each slide basically is there. These are three that I found very valuable. As Eric said, 
the overactive bladder guideline from SUFU and AUA is being revised. It'll be ready next year or the year after. Whoa, this is a lot too complicated. So after you get done diagnosing, basically, you treat. And you treat with what? Well, first line, behavior modification. <coughs> Second line, oral monotherapy. Third line, neuromodulation or Botox. Fourth line, augmentation, cystoplasty, et cetera. What is it we're trying to do? These are the potential management strategies for overactive bladder or detrusor overactivity, and we'll be concentrating mostly on number one, although all these in a different situation actually work. So the ideal drug, as Eric said, it blocks urgency, it blocks detrusor overactivity, it doesn't affect voluntary voiding, and there are minimal, minimal safety issues. Euroselectivity is and always has been the key. Unfortunately, there's no drug that's totally euroselective. These are the treatment goals. Remember that, as Eric said, the patient expectations have to be realistic, and a realistic goal is not cure. As Chris pointed out, it's actually symptom improvement. These are the metrics that are measured. Easiest one, urgency, urinary incontinence episodes. Pretty easy to count. People don't forget when they wet their pants. Urgency, sort of difficult, and nobody really knows how to define it very well to every patient. Urinary frequency, okay, pretty easy to count. Volume voided, obviously should go up with every treatment. You'll be surprised to see how little it actually goes up. Nocturia, uh, unless the patient gets up with a severe urge to void at night or urgency, because urge is a normal sensation, then the overactive bladder drugs are not going to work on nocturia, and most of them improve quality of life. What about behavioral therapy? Well, these are all the spheres that go into behavioral therapy. Now, the guidelines say start with behavioral therapy. I don't believe in step therapy. I think it's a waste of time. I think that it's disadvantageous to patients. I don't see telling them behavioral modification and telling them do all these things, come back in six weeks, and if you're not better, I'm going to give you a drug. You know, I use drug therapy and behavioral modification together. And basically the reason is that if you use behavioral modification and drug for both men uh, and women, that you will find that the two together give you a better result than either one alone. These are the additions from the EAU guidelines in general terms, and as Chris said, I would recommend these to you. These get revised every year, and although there aren't many changes, there are some. Reducing caffeine can reduce symptoms of frequency and urgency. Reducing fluid intake by 25% may, under, and you see it says may, doesn't always. Obesity's been found to have a risk factor, uh, at least in women but its relation to other OAB symptoms is uncertain. There's weak evidence for smoking sensation. Let's take a look at the anti-muscarinics. I'll show you some pretty pictures. The anti-muscarinics can work either on the afferent innervation or on the efferent innervation, filling and storage and emptying. Now, what, is, what do the anti-muscarinics decrease? What's the main symptom of overactive bladder? Urgency. That's what the anti-muscarinics decrease. When does urgency occur? Does it occur during emptying? Nope. It occurs during filling and storage. So that's where the anti-muscarinics work in the doses that you and I use them to treat overactive bladder. 
So in the usual doses, they do not affect emptying in patients with overactive bladder, even those with moderate bladder outlet obstruction. In the higher doses, they can produce retention. And here's a nice diagram by Carl Eric Anderson. This is the therapeutic window for OAB. As you increase the dose, you begin to affect the voiding contraction. It depends on the concentration of anti-muscarinics. This is the chart used by the International Continent Society to rate the drugs. What 1A, me whoops. What 1A means basically is that there have been double-blind placebo-controlled studies, and 1A means in the opinion of the society they work. So look at all the drugs here, the anti-muscarinics. These two are in a separate category because they have actions in the laboratory, not clinically, that are in addition to anti-muscarinic actions. You see the beta-3 agonists basically both get a 1A recommendation, and you see that the phosphodiesterase-5 inhibitors also get a 1A recommendation for LUTs, Botox, and you see that for Nocturia, uh, basically Desmopressin gets a 1A as well. So these are additions from the AUA guidelines that basically Eric has shown you. Um, basically, behavioral therapy, first line, yeah, I use them both together. You can use either an anti-muscarinic or beta-3 agonist. And if you look through these, you'll see that these are all Eric mentioned. Don't use anti-muscarinics in patients with narrow-angle glaucoma unless the ophthalmologist says I've treated it and it's okay. Obviously, patients that have significant outlet obstruction be very careful with the anti-muscarinics and be very careful with both drugs in frail patients. How do you compare results? Well, <laughs> there's not a good way because everybody uses the results that's favorable to them, right? As Chris said. So be very careful, compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges. Remember that medians are different than means. For some reason, median changes for overactive bladder drugs are generally higher than mean changes. Don't mix the two. So how do you get a baseline? How do you get a baseline if there's no head-to-head -head studies? And no one's gonna do head-to-head -head studies. Well, I think comparing percents and then calculating a drug-placebo ratio is a good way to establish a baseline. It's not perfect, but you can do this with basically simple mathematics. So let's look at the anti-muscarinics. And these are mostly median results. Okay, urgency urinary incontinence reduction. Whoa, look at the placebo effect, that's high. Anybody realize it was that high? Well, probably so, but you don't think about it because this is what the patient sees. Here are the drug-placebo ratios. Urgency episode reduction, okay, 30 to 50% with a placebo ratio of that. Here's the drug-placebo ratio. Frequency reduction, not very much, really, right? And here's the placebo effect. So the drug-placebo effect is here. All the drugs improve quality of life. These are the side effects. You're all familiar with these. Yep, some placebo patients do get dry mouth, constipation, et cetera. There was a flurry of information. Do the anti-muscarinics affect cardiac function? Not in the clinical doses that we use. Cognitive dysfunction, you'll see I have some slides about that. I think the only drug that's been definitively proven is oxybutynin in immediate release. Uh, and the EA, you can find that with a level of evidence too in the EAU. Um, basically guidelines. So anticholinergics and cognitive ability, two big studies. Increasing load, significant decline. Significant decline in the mini mental status examination associated with the use. 
the greatest risk basically in these patients. Two important papers. This is the AUA SUFU white guideline. Very good, published in 2022. Really nice authorship. This is the American Urogynecologic Society. They both say the same thing. Be very, very careful of anticholinergic total load in patients that you treat with an anti-muscarinic for overactive bladder. This is actually from 2016. This is when this first appeared in JAMA. And this is a good summary of this side of the argument. The use of anticholinergic medication is associated with increased brain atrophy and dysfunction and clinical decline. Thus, use of anticholinergic medication among older adults should be discouraged if, above ther if alternative therapies are available. So this is the issue. Most articles support this, not all. Supportive articles cite the total anti-muscarinic load. The drugs are not separated, as uh, Chris mentioned. So in other words, they don't separate out trospium, which in a normal individual doesn't penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Uh, they don't separate darifenison, which is pumped out by the PGP system after it crosses the blood-brain barrier. So the studies are not perfect. They certainly suggest, though, that to me, that, wow, if you have a choice, be really careful with these drugs. So these are the recommendations from the EAU for anti-muscarinics. You basically have seen these before. And by the way, when you hear a series of talks, if you hear the same thing twice, it's probably true. So uh, these are the EAU, consider extended release formulations. If the treatment's ineffective, either raise the dose or use a different anti-muscarinic or add um, a beta-3. This is Mirabegron because they never changed it from the time this guideline was formulated. Okay, EAU, very clear, big italics, my italics. No anticholinergic drug is clearly superior to another for cure or improvement of OAB UUI, just as Chris said. This is the way they're listed in the guideline, and I've just put this in red. It's not in red in the guideline. Most patients will stop anticholinergics in the first three months. I'll show you that in just a second. You can escalate the anti-muscarinic drugs, uh, basically. Um, higher doses are apt to be more effective, but they're also apt to produce more side effects. So, how do you level the playing field? As I told you, I think it's reasonable to take what the company submitted to the FDA, okay? Take the percents that they list, do a drug placebo ratio and compare them. And you'll see, as Chris said, there's not a whole lot of difference between the drugs in the two classes. So here, uh, let's take as an example, solifenacin and fesoteridine, because the PIs have been recently revised, okay? This is soli-5, this is efficacy. These are for a decrease in incontinence episodes. This is efficacy, this is placebo. Here's feso-4, efficacy, placebo. This is soli-10, efficacy, placebo. My, my, look at that, not much different than soli-5, is it? Here are the two studies that were submitted. Here are the two studies that were submitted. FESO-8, drug basically in placebo. So here's the drug placebo ratios, okay? Two studies on SOLI-5, 1.8, basically 1.5. One, 
three studies on SOLI-10, and you can see that not a lot of difference in SOLI-5. Here's FESO-4, and here's basically FESO-8 with the actual efficacy rating. So this one is 2.30. Well, why is it 2.30 and the rest are in the ones? Well, if you look at the efficacy rate, the absolute rate, it's not a lot of difference from the rest. So what's that mean? It means that in this particular study, for whatever reason, they had a low placebo rate, right? So what about the placebo effect? Well, placebo effects are really high. Here's a bunch of results. 41% to 56% symptomatic improvement or cure in the Cochrane Review. Here's another publication, urinary incontinence episodes per day, placebo. Uh, so really pretty incredible. Frequency, voided volume is the least placebo effect. Here's another series, placebo, basically for urinary incontinence episodes for anti-muscarinics. Um, Basically, this is for stress incontinence. You see, it's really the same thing. This was with duloxetine. This is a bar graph. Shows the same thing. Okay, here's the drug effect. The most effective one is oxybutynin. This is the placebo. So now think about this for a minute. What's the actual drug effect? Okay, is it this, or is it the difference between this and this, right? So the actual drug effect is the difference between the drug and the placebo. Is the placebo effect sustained? People say, well, no, it's not. Well, so consider this. There are agents that do a continuation study. So I put you on a drug, it works. There's a whole bunch of people like you. I take the ones that, in which it worked, I extend it out for a year, okay? The rate in which it worked initially is the same at the end of the year. Now, initially, I showed you a large percent due to placebo. If the placebo effect goes away, then the total effect of the drug should be much decreased by the same rate, right? In other words, it should be drug minus placebo. Guess what? That doesn't happen. <laughs> it's the same. So the placebo effect, I think if you treat the patient right or encouraging, if you have a bright, cheery attitude, et cetera, you follow them carefully, I think the placebo effect is sustained with these drugs, and it's the same at the end of a year in the ones in whom it worked originally as it was at the beginning. And do we really care? And well, you know, what does the patient see? The patient sees the end results. The elderly, this has been over, you have to be careful. Assess the anticholinergic total burden in the elderly people being considered for anticholinergic therapy. Long-term anticholinergic should be used with caution. This is the AUA guideline, be on the EAU guideline. It'd be interesting to see what the AUA comes up with. You can use anti-muscarinics in men. You can use to significantly improve storage symptoms. They can be associated with an increased PVR. The EAU sets the limit at 120. Somebody has a residual of 120, be real careful using anti-muscarinics. Below that, it's okay, just try it out. And if you use it with an alpha blocker, it's more effective in, in reducing the filling symptoms and the storage symptoms than either one alone. How about neurogenics? Well, they work in neurogenic patients as well. And this is the EAU, use anti-muscarinic therapy as first-line therapy for neurogenic detrusor overactivity. This is from Dave Ginsburg, excellent AUA guideline on neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. You can use anti-muscarinics or beta-3 agonists or a combination to improve bladder storage parameters. 
So what happens with anti-muscarinics after a while? Whoops. Statistically, they go down because in many people, whoop, they just don't last. So this is 12 months, and you can see the results are pretty dismal. Why is that? Well, this is basically one compilation that I did for one article that I did. Uh, in general, these are the reasons. OAB specifically, the big one, unrealistic expectations, okay? It's not that they don't work. They don't work as well as you told them they were going to work initially. This is a statistical analysis from the EAU guidelines because of not enough efficacy, because of adverse events, because of cost, other issues, and unreal expectations. Basically, the reasons for discontinuation are higher in the younger population. It's lower with extended release and lower for some reason in women. The beta threes, Meribegron, the first one, so the mechanism of action was figured out with this. Initially, they thought it was the direct evidence on smooth muscle, the activation of adenyl cyclase, yield cyclic, actually it's GMP, and ongoing bladder potassium channels may be activated, causing hyperpolarization. And then afferent inhibition was suggested as well, just like with antimuscarinics. And then there was a suggestion of prejunctional receptors, which downregulated acetylcholine release from cholinergic terminals. I'll show you some nice pictures. This is from the book Incontinence. So they definitely improve urgency, so they have to act during filling and storage. They definitely uh, improve urgency, as I said, so they act during filling and storage. There's some thought that, well, they also act to decrease spontaneous bladder activity if indeed that exists in the smooth muscle. Now, both Mirabegron and Vibegron get a 1A effect. What does Mirabegron do? Well, again, this is some of the prescribing information, so I think it's, you know, it has to be as good as any results. So, this is Mirabegron 50. There were three studies submitted. So this is just a decrease in incontinence episodes, 55%, 44% placebo, 53%, 37% placebo, and 55% um, with 40% placebo. This is Mirabegron 25. So you look at those and you say, well, yeah, I guess it's not really as good. Um, as the anti-muscarinics. If you look at the drug placebo ratios for the two anti-muscarinics that we already reviewed and Mirabegron, you can see that basically the drug placebo ratios are a little lower than they are with the anti-muscarinics. And I feel like Chris does. I don't think that they work quite as well. This is an article that Chris did about real practice, looking at a number of parameters. It's like really busy. So let's just take the incontinence decrease Let's look at placebo, just as high as we said. This is Mirabegron 25, Mirabegron 50, Solifenison 5, and Terodoline extended release. So here are the drug placebo ratios, uh, Mirabegron, Solifenison, Terodoline. So Solifenison at least has a better drug placebo ratio than Mirabegron. Interestingly, these are the side effects in that series. You can see the only one that was significantly different, uh, basically, for the anti-muscarinics and the beta-3s was dry mouth. Constipation was not that much different. Mirabegron persistence, well, a little more persistent. So, okay, if it has fewer side effects, I guess that's what you would expect. 
The side effects of mirabegron, this is the killer, hypertension. Now, just think about this a second, okay? In, in any trial, you know that 5% of the results are gonna be a little odd. So placebo, this is the hypertension, very strict definition of hypertension. This is mirabegron 50, same as placebo. This is mirabegron 25. That's why the, it's in the PI that hypertension's a risk and that you should follow these patients by having their blood pressure checked periodically. Do, did I do that with Mirabegron? I told them to go to their GP. I don't want to come back to the office and waste an office visit to check their blood pressure or go buy a monitor and check it, you know, yourself. What this says basically is that most of the studies, including the study that Chris did, do not show a difference in hypertension between antimuscarinics and Mirabegron. In other words, the incidence in Chris's series, I think, was basically 1%, um, and that was in elderly patients. So I'm not sure that the hypertension business, that's the same slide, um, is true, but the point is it's in the PI, so you have to do what it says unless sometime it's changed. Is Mirabegron safe in the elderly? The qualitative answer basically is yes, and this is the EAU guideline, et cetera. Now, this is interesting. Look what the EAU says. Solifenacin, darifenacin, fesoteridine, trospium have been shown not, not to cause cognitive dysfunction in elderly people in short-term studies. Short-term studies, not long-term studies. But it's interesting, and basically what that means is in all these studies, the drugs haven't been segmented. It's too bad. In other words, most of the, the most popular drugs, oxybutynin, so what you see in those big studies is mostly the effects of oxybutynin. So here are the guidelines for the beta-3 agonists, basically. Both better than placebo. This says as effective as antimuscarinics. I'm not sure looking at certain efficacy parameters that's true. Adverse events, this is from the EAU guidelines with Mirabegron and Vibegron are similar to placebo. Beta agonists in men, basically they help. Same as with antimuscarinics, maybe not quite as well, but you can use beta agonists in men with storage symptoms. So Vibegron, basically, um, the newer drug on the market, it's selective. If you look in the laboratory, yeah, okay, it's more selective than Mirabegron. There's more beta-2 activity, beta-1 activity with uh, Mirabegron than with Vibegron. The maximum response at beta-3 receptors, basically, um, is a little greater with Vibegron than Mirabegron. Now, this is from a publication called The Medical Letter on Drugs and Therapeutics. Okay, this lists basically the differences between Vibegron and Mirabegron. So for Vibegron, you can use in moderate liver disease. With Mirabegron, it says you shouldn't. Same thing with renal disease. Moderate renal disease, okay. Uh, Mirabegron says no. Drug-drug uh, interactions, says Mirabegron has more drug-drug interactions than Vibegron. Basically, you can summarize these differences, but this is the reference. No difference in results by age, no dosage adjustment for moderate renal disease or liver disease, minor induction or inhibitory effect on the cytochrome enzymes. It does increase digoxin maximal concentrations. So what's a drug-drug interaction? 
Well, a lot of people don't think about that. I'm not sure I've ever seen one, but I'm sure they've occurred in my practice. So this is basically a pretty decent article if you're looking for an article about this. And so this is the summary. Drug-drug interactions result in unintended reactions, toxic side effects, or a lack of clinical efficacy in individuals when multiple medications are simultaneously administered. The pharmacologic effect or one or couple drugs may be enhanced or suppressed or a new and unanticipated adverse event may occur, even leading to fatal consequences. This was the original data about Vibegron uh, presented in the journal Urology in tabular form. Unfortunately, they were just bar graphs with no numbers down here, so you couldn't really tell exactly what the percents were. So this was the side effect profile, hypertension, no difference between drug and placebo. These are the true ratios from what was submitted basically to the FDA. So let's just look at urgency, urinary incontinence reduction. 58.8% versus 40% drug placebo ratio 1.47. Let's look at urgency, okay? 33% reduction in urgency. Now, none of the drugs, amazingly enough, reduce urgency, you know, that, that much. And this is the placebo effect, so a low drug placebo effect. This is voided volume, basically. Um, voided volume is maybe the most accurate indicator, but as you can see, uh, the drug placebo ratio is pretty high. So Mirabegron's been shown basically, yep, it works in people. It's, there's an extension study that shows, yeah, it doesn't go down particularly at 52 weeks. It works in elderly people and it raises quality of life. Are there comparisons between the two? Well, here are two articles, okay? This is one review. I wanted to know why they eliminated the 40 out of 49 records. Okay, I don't know, because it doesn't really say. Um, interestingly, in this article, hypertension was the same in both drugs, Mirabegron and Vibegron. This is basically the chart that looks at this favored Mirabegron. Here's the other study, uh, basically. In, in the Far East looking at, this was only a 50 milligram dose of Vibegron versus 50 milligrams of Mirabegron and there was no significant difference. Well, let's do the drug placebo ratios on what was submitted to the FDA, okay? So here's Mirabegron and here's Vibegron. And you know, just as Chris said, hey, there's not a lot of difference if you look at this, is there? Um, except maybe for voided volume. Um, here's a big drug placebo difference with voided volume, and yet the absolute difference is really about the same. So what's that mean? Just means that for whatever reason, the placebo effect in this group was pretty small. So which drug, which class? This is one opinion in something called up-to-date. And basically what these people said was, look, when I have a choice between the two classes, I would rather use a beta-3 than an antimuscarinic because of the lack of side effects. Um, they considered the two therapeutically about equal. They did avoid Mirabegron in individuals with poorly controlled hypertension or who developed new hypertension. But as I said, in the, a lot of the other studies, the incidence of hypertension in the two groups, Mirabegron, Vibegron, has really been about the same. Alpha agonists, you know, they do work in men, especially uh, if they're combined with something to treat filling storage symptoms, there's no evidence that just giving an alpha blocker 
is effective in patients with only storage symptoms, and it has been pretty ineffective in women. Um, this is basically what you can expect, you know, with an alpha blocker, and it can reduce both storage and voiding <laughs> symptoms. Phosphodiesterase inhibitors, especially PDE5, um, if you inhibit the or the transition of cyclic GMP, you know, here the metabolism, then you'll get a persistence of the vasodilatory effects, which basically is what you get. And this does improve uh, at least the AUA and IPSS, that is the symptom score. So the recommendation of the EAU is to use phosphodiesterase inhibitors in men with moderate to severe LUTs. And you should be able to use any of them. There's no reason. This one's approved in the U.S. for BPH, but actually the rest of them should be. And why do they decrease male LUTs? Well, I don't know. These are all possibilities. Estrogen, oral estrogen, if anything, is going to increase incontinence. Local estrogen vaginal creams have been reported to improve incontinence and certainly improve the symptoms of genitose urinary symptom of menopause, of which OAB can be a component. So the EAU says offer that to women with LUTs, postmenopausal women, and associated symptoms of GSM. So what have we learned? Different ways to look at efficacy. Basically, the difference between drug and placebo, that's the actual drug effect. Uh, look at the drug-placebo ratio. The drug plus placebo is what the patient actually experiences. Means are different from medians. Results are all over the board. Uh, Drug-placebo ratios is one way of looking at these. For each type of drug, there appears to be a ceiling effect, and there may be a ceiling effect for all overactive bladder drugs. You know, in other words, for the oral drugs. There may be a ceiling effect that you're just not going to be able to go over. And in order for something to be significantly better, to say it is, it's got to be significantly better with those parameters. Here's another question raised. This is a new slide. Basically, I just made this because this just came out last month in the journal Urology. Step therapy, is that really justified, starting with oxybutynin and going up for the benefit of the patient? You know, my vote is no. So thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Now we're going to talk about, uh, Chris uh, Chappell is going to talk about uh, combination therapy. Um, for overactive bladder, and uh, uh, I urge you to follow this talk because there's a lot of combinations that he's going to talk about. Thanks a lot, Eric. And, you know, it's amazing what placebo is, isn't it? I've always wondered about it, but one of the things that always occurred to me is often in these trials, it's the first time the patient's had a bladder diary. A number of years ago, I did a, a secondary analysis on a study with um, Senda Hershorn, and we found that in the placebo group, the patients reduced their fluid intake, and in the active treatment, they increased it. Interesting. Because bladder diary is a form of bladder training. Because for the first time, the patient's actually seeing. You know, I remember a patient who was a professor in the university who had had Botox and everything. I did a bladder diary. He was drinking four and a half litres a day and about two litres of coffee. He stopped that and he was cured. Okay, so what you're trying to do is to look with any drug at dealing with the relentless course of a condition which is chronic and which is going to potentially worsen. That's what we're talking about with the bladder. And what you're trying to do is reverse that process but not produce side effects which makes the quality of life worse. And obviously the principle is to address the situation by using two drugs with different modes of action. 
and where hopefully you can, by using a dose which is going to be additive, without increasing side effects, possibly by reducing, for instance, the dose of anticholinergic, as an example, that you can try and improve the matter. And so certainly, it's, you've got to think of mechanism of action, efficacy, adverse events. So, beta-3 and anti-muscarinic, it's one that's been publicised recently. The principle, as you know, of course, it's the sensory mode of action of the, of the beta-3, as we've already mentioned, and how by using these different effects that you can actually achieve that. A number of studies have looked at the combination, involving quite a lot of work, and an early study was the Symphony study, which looked with solifenicin as an example at 2.5 uh, and uh, 5 and 10 milligrams, uh, and basically looking at combination with um, mirabegron at different doses. And they came to the conclusion that 5 milligrams of solifenicin, and remember, in the rest of the world, mostly, we don't use 25 milligrams except with renal function deterioration or hepatic dysfunction. And I've never had any trouble using 50 milligrams. Even in Japan, where they normally use half the dose of everything else, they use 50 milligrams. It's just because the regulatory authorities had a concern. So certainly 50 milligrams of mirabegron was pretty well chosen, and that led on to the BESIDE study. And basically what they tried to do was to have a superiority study which failed. And so they came to non-inferiority, uh, basically. So adding mirabegron to solifenicin, 5 milligrams, that's 50 plus 5, uh, further improved OAB symptoms versus solifenicin, 5 or 10. And you can see that is suggested there. That's reduction in, in the sort of issues relating to uh, quality of life. Uh, and this is dealing with incontinence. You can see that. This is dealing with micturitions. And you can see maximum incontinence episodes. But again, the effects are fairly marginal. And these are the statistical analyses which couldn't show superiority. So in a sense, it was a failed study because it was actually designed as a superiority study. Adding mirabagron to is associated with um, measurable improvements in health-related quality of life. The patients felt better. And you can see adding mirabegron to solifenicin associated with a clinically marked meaning improvement in symptom bother and patient's perception of bladder condition. Side effect profile, as we've already heard from Alan, there wasn't a great difference from the, from the beta-3 over the anti-muscarinic. And certainly you can see there wasn't a significant effect on pulse rate or blood pressure. With mirabegron, you're only... Meant to, it's only meant to be contraindicated with a systolic blood pressure of 150 combined with a diastolic of 110. So quite a significant hypertension situation. And just to mention, we've heard a lot about the antimuscarinics, but remember that oxybutynin is not a pure antimuscarinic. It's actually a, a, a dirty drug. It's also got local anaesthetic properties and other acts. It's a mixed action drug like propivirine. So conclusion was that combination did have some advantages, and I think many people do use this as a sort of intermediate approach after somebody's had a meaningful benefit, whether you start with a beta-3 or with an anti-muscarinic, you add one to the other. And in clinical practice, it can be useful. We've all seen that. Vibegron, there was a study, this is not a powered study, but there was a study where they actually had 
uh, a limb which actually had um, a, a solifenison as well and really didn't show any big difference. But this is not a powered study. You can't really comment. I'm putting it there for completeness. But certainly, again, the beta-3 didn't have much in the way of side effects, and that's what they conclude. Over many years, one of the first combinations was an alpha block, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, and certainly we've seen that. People have misused the data to say that uh, dutastride is better than finasteride, but remember that dutastride was using a select population of patients, over 30 gram-sized prostates. There was a study from Curtis Nickel that showed dutastride and finasteride from, I think, one of the big companies, uh, nearly 1,000 in each group. They're identical drugs. So bear that in mind. But the downside I'm putting up here is to emphasize that if you take an alpha blocker and you take a 5-alpha reductase, you can see the increased effect on sexual function over either alone. So always bear that in mind. I've never seen any of the companies put up this slide, even though it's in the data set. You get adverse events if you add two drugs which are affecting, you know, if you take a, a, a selective, a beta, you know, an alpha-selective agent such as tamsulosin, uh, salidosin causes, it's 168-fold over tamsulosin for the alpha-1A, uh, and certainly you get 25% problems with ejaculation and erections with sardidosin. I don't think it's used in the States. Is it? Okay. But it's, it's got a safer cardiovascular profile. But, you know, it's that, you've just got to bear that in mind, I think it's fair to say. Okay, alpha blocker and anti-muscarinic. And certainly this goes back to this, the voiding efficiency. Again, 120, 140 mils is taken as that 40% cutoff. It was never really emphasized at the time, but all the trials used that as a cutoff because when these trials were done, men, we were always worried about putting men on anti-muscarinics because of putting them into retention. And this data has shown that you, you, you don't do that. Remember, 60% of men with blood outlet obstruction have urodynamically proven to truce overactivity, and more than that, actually have overactive bladder, the storage symptoms. And so there is an advantage, you can see, in looking at whether the predominant problem is storage or voiding. And again, if you, if you look at data, you can see this very clearly shown, that there is an advantage of the combination. Use of anti-muscarinics alone, again, at the same time, people looked at that. And at the time, it was controversial, but now it's well accepted. You can put a man on an anti-muscarinic as long as they don't have a large void, voiding post-voiding residual. And that's where the voiding inefficiency comes in. Because if you start with somebody that's already got a um, residual more than 40% of the functional capacity, then of course it's going to inhibit the truth to some extent. It may tip them into retention. It's sort of common sense, isn't it? Alpha block and anti-muscarinic, therefore, uh, combination has been now clearly uh, established. Tamsulosin and solifenicin, there was a marketed combination and the, the evidence is that there is some benefit. But to be honest, I think most of us just use the drugs not in combination but adding one to the other. That's certainly my practice. And if you look, you can see here, um, the TOCUS is just a, a market extension of Tamsulosin trying to maintain the branded drug, which is said to have a slow release. Most of us have just used tamsulosin. And if you look there, if you, adding in solifenicin, you, you improve the benefit. And you can see that without a significant 
um, problem. But you can see the benefit of storage symptoms, quality of life improvement. Alpha blockers and beta-3, small studies which have shown this, but more recently a study from the States which has shown this, and you can see this did demonstrate some benefit, as you might expect. What I'm doing is going through things quite quickly because, you know, you can spend a lot of time looking at the data, which you should do, but at the end of the day it's what you'd expect, having looked at each of the individual drugs. There is benefit combining drugs. And you can see that shown here from this paper in the Journal of Urology. If you then go on to the PD-5 inhibitors, they seem to improve overactive bladder symptoms. And you can see here, uh, compared to Tadalafil and Tamsulosin, again thought to be due to sensory mechanisms, poorly defined, nobody's really sure. But there is good evidence, and you can see, therefore, with metronalysis of Tadalafil, that's been shown. So no surprise, you can do alpha blocker and PD-5 inhibitor, and there's certainly a combination. There is some evidence, but you can see it's not high-quality evidence. You've got the 5-alpha reductase and PD-5. Theory here is if you're getting the 5-alpha reductase causing problems with sexual function, the PD-5 may improve it by counteracting that. That's the suggestion. Again, small studies showing that there is a benefit Beta-3 agonist and PD-5. You can see every combination's been tried, but outside the studies which are used as pivotal studies to get a market license, they're all small numbers. And again, you've got to take them as they stand with small numbers. And you can see this randomized study here, but again, it's fairly small numbers, but again, showing a benefit. So I've tried to pull out from the literature what exists just to show that there is no doubt that combination therapy may be advantageous. You've got to think of the side effect profile and you've got to think of what you're trying to achieve. So ultimately, that's what you're doing. You think of every possible combination. And at the end of the day, whether it's male or female, what you're trying to do is to think of all of the other effects in the body the drugs may have, what the underlying pathophysiology is, and then trying to use it on a personalised basis in an individual patient to improve, ultimately, their quality of life. It's not a matter of cure, unfortunately, because you stop any of these drugs, their symptoms will revert. Although we all know patients who've been on treatment and their symptoms seem to get better, again, due to other factors. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to switch uh, topics slightly to, uh, to Nocturian, although it's not, Nocturian is not an uh, 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 individual symptom uh, or is an individual symptom of overactive bladder. I'm going to treat it as a condition in and of itself, even though it is a component of overactive bladder. So we'll talk about some monotherapy and combination therapy for, for Nocturia. Uh, Nocturia is the most prevalent lower urinary tract symptom. I, I don't remember whether Chris or Alan already showed you this slide, but uh, of, of all the lower urinary tract symptoms, filling and voiding and uh, storage and voiding symptoms, um, Nocturia is the most common symptom. Bothersomeness, as we measure bothersomeness uh, in large population studies, seems to occur when nocturia is occurring two or more times. ICS defines nocturia as waking up one or more times at night, uh, so you have to wake up, go to the bathroom, go back to sleep. So if you go to the bathroom five times watching the 11 o'clock news, 
then you go to sleep and sleep the whole night, your nocturia is zero. Um, three broad categories for nocturia, only one is relevant to this talk. Uh, so you can wake up at night because you're, uh, you drink too much, polyuria, leading to polydipsia. You can have bladder storage problems, overactive bladder, you can have BPH or BPE or obstruction resulting in distributed overactivity, or you can have nocturnal polyuria. That's the one relevant to this talk is nocturnal polyuria. And of course, you could have non-neurologic problems such as a primary sleep disorder. And if we take those categories and we break them down, polyuria is caused by polydipsia and bladder storage problems are caused by overactive bladder, a variety of other things. And then there's nocturnal polyuria. Lots of drugs have been looked at. That long laundry list that you just heard for the last hour of, of anti-muscarinics, beta-3s, alpha blockers, PDE-5s, have all been looked at for nocturia, uh, and all have failed, either as a primary analysis or a secondary analysis. And, and you'd say, why? Well, here, monotherapy, lots of different drugs have been used, anti-muscarinics, beta-3s, uh, alpha blockers, PDE-5s, have all been looked at as monotherapy for nocturia. Uh, here's just a brief list, and, and, and if you look real hard, the reduction in number of voids per night for these agents as monotherapy for, for nocturia, the results are pretty miserable. And you say, well, well why? I use alpha blockers for, for my BPH patients, for, for, and they get, their nocturia gets, gets a little bit better. Well, the problem is when you do these studies in large populations, you're not selecting your patients with nocturnal polyuria, which is the number one cause of nocturia. You're treating very, virtually everybody, uh, and you're not selecting the patients who would respond. So, so nocturnal polyuria is not going to respond to an alpha blocker or a PDE5. Similarly, if you use combination therapy for nocturia, again, lots of studies have looked at uh, therapy for nocturia with combination therapy, as Chris talked about, it doesn't work very well unless you uh, eliminate patients with nocturnal polyuria, because nocturnal polyuria represents the largest group of patients with nocturia. You're not treating nocturnal polyuria with alpha blockers or anti-muscarinics. So it's pretty clear, uh, that was a lead into this slide, which is really uh, three different prevalence studies looking at the prevalence of nocturia, of nocturnal polyuria in patients who have nocturia, and it doesn't matter whether you're in Europe, Japan, or the US, the majority of patients with nocturia have nocturnal polyuria. So you have to treat the nocturnal polyuria to treat the nocturia, not the other problems that they may have. And as Chris talked about earlier, there's only really one way to assess nocturia. That's with a voiding diary. Uh, this is my own voiding diary that I use. It's not any better or worse than anybody else's diary. But a voiding diary is just a record of, of how much and how often the patient urinates. Yes, I do make my patients with nocturia fill out a diary. If they want to get better, that's the way to get better, is to make sure that they have nocturnal polyuria. Even though the majority do, I want to prove it to them so then we can discuss rational therapy. Nocturnal urine volume is the amount of urine the patient makes after the first time they go to sleep until they wake up, including the first void of the morning. That's all of their overnight urine production. And then from that, you can get a nocturnal polyuria index, which is very simply the amount of urine uh, uh, that they make overnight divided by the total urine volume for 24 hours. A normal person, because of things we're going to talk about, uh, 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 vasopressin, among other things, uh, that normal volume should be, in a normal person, less than 33% of their nocturnal, their 24-hour volume. You should make less than a third of your urine overnight to not have nocturnal polyuria. That's a normal person. If you make more than a third, 
you have nocturnal polyuria. So this is a patient with, this is a diary, I, it, I'm, I'm sorry it doesn't project very well, but this is a diary of a patient who goes to the bathroom frequently and has nocturia. What do they have? Well, they have the same volumes during the day and the same frequency during the day that they have at night. They're making two or three ounces every void. This person doesn't really have nocturnal polyuria. They have overactive bladder. They have to be treated for their overactive bladder. This is a patient uh, who drinks too much. No matter what I do this patient, whatever drug I give them, as Chris said, the professor who drank four and a half liters, I can give him all the drugs in the world, he's not gonna get better. I have to tell him to restrict the fluids that they're drinking during the day uh, to, to uh, treat their uh, avoiding dysfunction. This person has nocturnal polyuria. Let me show you why. There's their nocturnal volumes from the time they went to sleep to the time they woke up. 300, 400, 350, and then their daytime volumes are 70, 70, and 75. So this person makes about 60 to 70% of their urine at night. I can give them all the BPH drugs and overactive bladder drugs in the world, that's not gonna fix that. And the only, the only way to diagnose that is with a diary. This is a patient who basically has both overactive bladder and nocturnal polyuria. They're making about 1,300 cc's overnight. Uh, that's a lot of urine overnight. And during the day, they're making small volume voids. So this patient needs treatment for both overactive bladder and nocturnal polyuria. So what is the etiology of nocturnal polyuria? There's lots of different ones. Patients who take their diuretics at night, patients who drink a six pack of beer before they go to bed, patients who have six cups of coffee before they go to bed, patients who eat a bag of potato chips and drink water before they go to bed. Those are all causes, uh, behavioral causes of nocturnal polyuria. They are easily fixed. And then there are medical conditions and things like sleep disorders where urologists, uh, I, I don't treat sleep disorders, but I send them to a, a sleep center. Um, but congestive heart failure, renal failure, obstructive sleep apnea, all these other uh, biological causes, if you will, of nocturnal polyuria, I don't, I don't treat. The one that's relevant to us as urologists, as people who treat patients with nocturnal polyuria, is, is actually the hormonal causes. And that's uh, uh, related to arginine vasopressin, something that you all learned about in, in, in medical school and are very familiar with, otherwise known as antidiuretic hormones. Uh, antidiuretic hormone, something released from the posterior pituitary um, and uh, uh, as well as atrial natriuretic peptide released from uh, the heart in, in, uh, in, uh, in response to various pulmonary conditions. These are the two hormonal causes of nocturnal polyuria. Treatment for nocturnal polyuria starts with behavioral things, things that I showed you earlier that you can fix, uh, uh, diuretics and fluid restriction and things of that sort, uh, lower extremity edema, fixing lower extremity edema either with leg elevation or, or compression hose, uh, and then uh, treating their medical illness, which of course as a urologist, I don't treat their medical illness. I send them to their uh, family doctor and I tell them if you treat their COPD or their obstructive sleep apnea uh, or their renal uh, disease, uh, maybe we can make their nocturia better. But let's get back to the hormonal causes, which are not really urological, uh, but they're things that urologists treat. Arginine vasopressin, AVP, antidiuretic hormone, is released from the posterior pituitary, generally and physiologically in response to changes in plasma on os osmotic pressure, not oncotic pressure. Uh, it actually acts at two different receptors, a V1 receptor and a V2 receptor. A V1 receptors um, are located in the vascular bed and in the uterus. V2 receptors are located in the kidney. 
And if you take uh, uh, the agent, the arginine vasopressin, as an agonist of the V2 receptor, uh, what happens is it causes free water absorption in the medulla of the kidney. What does free water absorption result in? Less urine output. Okay? The, uh, the reason that happens or the physiologic mechanism is the V2 receptor causes a fusion of something called an aquaporin molecule uh, to the uh, uh, luminal side of the collecting duct, which causes free water reabsorption uh, in the medulla. This is the best cartoon I've ever seen. I don't, I'm not a renal physiologist, um, but this is the best cartoon I've ever seen for describing actually what AVP or antidiuretic hormone does uh, in the kidney. And, and, and what you see here is uh, collecting tube, the glomerulus de descending, ascending, and then collecting tubule. This is a, a normal uh, a nephron uh, under the uh, influence of uh, DDAVP. What you get is free water absorption in the collecting, and you get a small volume of very concentrated urine. And that's what's supposed to happen uh, at night. Uh, we make less urine at night. Desmopressin acetate, DDAVP, is a... Uh, um, a construct uh, of AVP which lasts longer. Uh, it, it is an engineered form, a synthetic analog of arginine vasopressin. Arginine vasopressin lasts in the serum just for seconds. It's not a useful physiologic molecule uh, to give uh, on a daily basis. So this is a synthetic analog that lasts longer. Uh, it lasts several hours. It is a V2 receptor agonist, meaning it has very little effect on vascular uh, beds, very little effect on the, uh, the uterus at V1 uh, 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 receptors, really only works on V2. Uh, it increases urine osmolality and decreases urine volume. Desmopressin gets a A rating from the International Consultation on Incontinence. Alan showed you this earlier. Um, it does cause considerable adverse events, uh, the most famous of which is hyponatremia. There is a substantial risk of hyponatremia. I will show you that shortly. That risk of hyponatremia is tied strongly to age. It is much more of a risk in the elderly than in the young. It is also tightly tied to a low sodium at baseline uh, and then excessive fluid intake uh, in the evening. The key about that hyponatremia is, if it doesn't happen in the first few days, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen weeks or months later. So this requires long-term monitoring of sodium levels. Uh, the EAU has very particular guidelines at three and seven and 30 days, and then uh, several times a year, uh, you should measure patients' serum sodium despite chronic use of DDAVP. So how well does it work? Uh, this is a systemic review. Roughly, you're gonna reduce three quarters to one void per night over placebo. The key of this drug or this, this, uh, this agent is that it decreases uh, urine uh, uh, volume at night, so it increases the time to your first awakening to void, and that's your highest quality of sleep. So from the patient's perspective, getting that first void a longer interval is, is of great uh, importance for their quality of life. So that's, that's the mechanism of this improving quality of life is the increase in sleep prior to the first time that you wake up to void. What is the incidence of hyponatremia? In one large meta-analysis, it was 7.6%. That's pretty high, right? So that's why you have to monitor these patients. I told you the risk factors, a low sodium at baseline. Women are at slightly increased risk than men. Patients with cardiac disease and renal disease 
also concomitant drug use, uh, steroids, um, uh, either inhaled or systemic steroids and loop diuretics also increase your risk of hypoinatremia. The drug is actually contraindicated uh, with a concomitant use of loop diuretics or corticosteroids. Uh, again, monitoring sodium, uh, that's at, this is the, uh, not the European guidelines. Uh, this is uh, suggested uh, from that original paper, roughly checking a baseline sodium, and then at four days after starting therapy, 28 days, and then about every six months. So an interesting study that came out very recently looked at, uh, I just showed you a bunch of contraindications to DDAVP. So how many people can actually safely benefit from DDAVP for nocturia? And this was a big analysis of over 4,000 patients uh, from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, lots of publications out of this uh, data set. But uh, they reviewed basically all the comorbidities of all these 4,000 patients entered in, and they did an analysis of how many patients could actually safely take DDAVP uh, based on their medical history. And as you can see, there were prescribing concerns in 80% of patients in this study, uh, of which uh, almost 42% took a concomitant drug that could increase the risk of low serum sodium, and 50% of these patients had outright contraindications to DDAVP use. So if you're careful in who you choose your DDAVP patients, it's actually a very small number to safely give DDAVP. There's multiple different formulations for DDAVP. They're oral tablets, most commonly used. There's a, a nasal spray. Uh, the, nasal, the company that produced the nasal spray, uh, the, uh, the nasal spray has been discontinued temporarily. Uh, I don't have any further information for you. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, I should say the newest form of the nasal spray, uh, which was known as Noctiva, uh, it uh, uh, allegedly led to improved biocompatibility, which led to lower rates of hyponatremia, but the drug is no longer on the market. There's also an oral disintegrating tablet uh, known as Nocturna. Uh, the, quote, melt formulation also allows lower dosing uh, and potentially less risk of hyponatremia. This is the data from the Noctiva trials. The gray represents uh, the placebo. Uh, the orange is the low dose of uh, Noctiva. The blue is the high dose of Noctiva. And you can see if you do the drug placebo ratios like Alan uh, suggests, uh, the, 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 the effect is not uh, uh, fantastic, uh, uh, but there is a uh, reduction, a uh, substantial reduction, at least of one night plus placebo, uh, one episode plus as compared to placebo. Uh, I'm going to skip this. Um, reduction in urine volume is actually what we're after for these drugs. So this is the actual data from, again, the study looking at reduction in urine volume. If you look at placebo versus the high dose, there is a substantial difference in uh, urine volume uh, with uh, DDAVP as uh, Noctiva. That's the, the incidence of hyponatremia. Couple of couple of thoughts about combination therapy. I know Chris covered a lot of this. Um, there's no reason why you couldn't combine DDAVP with patients or in patients who have other concomitant lower urinary tract problems. Uh, <coughs> nocturnal polyuria occurs, as I showed you in those diaries, in combination with other lower urinary tract pathology. So there's no reason why you couldn't. For example, uh, this is a study that we did a number of years ago uh, looking at uh, 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 women uh, with overactive bladder and nocturia. And they were randomized to tolteridine uh, with or without DDAVP. It's a 12-week trial. Uh, I'll skip through this very quickly, but the point here is that uh, these are women with a combined disorder, uh, and if you look at combination therapy versus monotherapy, the blue versus the orange, uh, what you'll see uh, is that uh, there was a substantial reduction in nocturia in both groups. The real difference 
was if you culled out the women who, had, uh, who didn't have nocturnal polyuria, so now we're looking at the patients in whom DDAVP actually works on, you get a substantial difference between uh, patients on placebo and drug because you are actually now treating the patients who have the condition for which DDAVP will, will treat. So combination therapy, if you select the patients properly, you will get a good response in combination therapy. I'm going to skip through that. And then the, 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 the same goes for DDAVP in patients with males with lower urinary tract symptoms. Studies have been done looking at BPH uh, and nocturia and nocturnal polyuria. And there's just a couple of studies that show an increased efficacy for nocturia if you have combination therapy in patients with BPH and nocturnal polyuria. Same thing uh, uh, for uh, patients with overactive bladder. Just a word on future pharmacotherapies for nocturia. Uh, this is a, a, a drug that was very exciting a couple of years ago, Fedovapagon, uh, which was another V2 receptor uh, agonist. Um, they actually had a successful phase two, phase three RCT um, with uh, improved nocturnal voids from baseline, improvement in time in the first void, reduction in nightly voids by 50%. Uh, I could not find anything in further about this drug. Uh, the, uh, uh, it just says that uh, the development was discontinued in September 21, uh, 2021. Uh, the, the interesting thing, that the thought was that this was a longer-acting drug than DDAVP, which is why they had perhaps better efficacy. But uh, on the downside, and I don't have any independent confirmation of this, if you have a longer-acting drug, then your risk of hyponatremia is also going up, and that perhaps is why uh, the drug was discontinued. There are a couple of other small molecule uh, V2 receptor agonists in development. I don't have any further information uh, on those, so maybe we'll hear more about that in the future. Uh, there was some interest in a drug called Paxerol a couple years ago. Uh, Paxerol is a combination of acetaminophen and a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories actually have a couple of physiologic properties uh, in the urinary tract. They do, to some degree, reduce urine production, reduce detrusor's muscle tone and inflammation, uh, at least in men with BPH. So uh, this was a very, very small study, a phase two study of 86 patients uh, looking with, an, with a mean number of two and a half uh, nocturnal voids and actually uh, this combination agent, which uh, again, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, actually uh, had a pretty good effect uh, in a very small number of patients in a four-way trial. Uh, have not heard much more about Paxerol uh, for nocturia and nocturnal polyuria. So conclusions, uh, nocturia is the most common lower urinary tract symptom, may or may not be related to overactive bladder. There's three causes, behavioral bladder storage problems and hormonal problems. Your diary is your key, your diary is your key, your diary is your key. Treatments based on the underlying cause, uh, DDAVP is the primary treatment for nocturnal polyuria, for nocturia due to nocturnal polyuria, and beware that just because they have one lower urine tract condition doesn't mean they also don't have nocturnal polyuria. Thank you. And we'll uh, move on to future, future pharmacotherapies uh, with uh, Alan. Thank you. So possibilities for future pharmacologic therapy, conflict of interest. So you win the lottery, all right, for a billion dollars. You want to go out and develop a drug. So what do you have to do? Well, first of all, you need a pharmacologic rationale. Okay, why should, uh, if you're going to develop a particular product, why should it work? Then you need to get some animals and you need to get some tissue in vitro and see if it produces the desired effect. 
then you need to study some animals in vivo, mostly little furry animals, to see if it works. Then you need to do a toxicology study uh, in real people. Then you need to do a phase one trial, a phase two trial, a phase three trial, and basically then you submit it to the FDA. So two articles about the success of drugs going on to clinical trials, and this is for each one. As you can see, your likelihood of making more money is not terribly great. Here's another one, look at other than oncology. So the probability of getting to phase one is 21%. If you do that, getting through phase two, 27, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So difficult to do. Potential management strategies, we've already done that. Possible sites of action anywhere from the brain down to the detrusor smooth muscle. Drugs can affect release, binding, transduction steps, metabolism of any agonist or antagonist. Some pretty pictures. Drugs can act on basically the afferent side, sensory side that is. They can act on the motor side. Again, just a pretty picture. They can act on the afferent side, back to the CNS. They can act on the efferent side through the CNS or actually down as far as the smooth muscle of the bladder. They can act on the urethelial cells. They can act on the lamina propria. They can act on the muscle. And again, some pretty pictures from the book Incontinence, which actually you can download in slide form. So they can act on the urethelium. They can act on the interstitial cells. The problem is always going to be uroselectivity. Are there any other possibilities for antimuscarinics? Well, in order to be better, they either have to be more effective, that is, exceed what's now the ceiling effect, or have fewer side effects. This was the problem with anticholinergics and cognitive dysfunction. We covered that. Are there other possibilities? Cannot find this drug anymore. This was an interesting product that combined an anticholinergic with a medication that stimulated salivary secretion. Um, they had a phase three trial that was in progress that began in 2015. Haven't heard very much about it since. I can no longer find this one. Um, so I, in the book Incontinence, there are no other antimuscarinics for OAB in development that are mentioned. These drugs are not yet licensed in the U.S. Propivirine is an oxybutynin type drug. Um, I'm not sure why someone hasn't tried to license it in the U.S. There have been very few studies done to the exhaustion of the studies in the U.S. Amatophenicin is a drug that's been tried in Japan. A few trials have shown, wow, um, it really has a very good effect. It's another, it's a combination drug. Like Chris says, it's a little bit of a dirty drug, not just a pure anti-muscarinic, supposedly a lower dry mouth than solifenicin. Um, hasn't really been subjected to any comparative studies or what we would consider good placebo studies. Beta-3 adrenergic agonists are going to have to be better than the two out there. Um, phase three studies not yet done for this one. I mean, this has been around now for years. And when something's been around for years and you see no new stuff, you can say, well, yeah, okay. This is an interesting story. This is what happens, basically. Here's a drug, pharmacologic rationale. Yep, it's a beta-3 agonist. It's pretty selective. Limited effect on heart rate or blood pressure. Phase, got up to phase three trials. So they've already spent a lot of money 
primary efficacy endpoint, which was frequency, not met. So goodbye, right of Egron. So this is basically the chronology. This was the phase one. It increased the volume at first contraction, uh, basically. And this was a, a quote. The, the other studies actually weren't published, but someone who was involved basically did publish this comment. It seems that the primary efficacy endpoint was not met. So there are a few others in the pipeline. These are all the numbers. Um, you know, there are really three possibilities for action. I don't think anybody really knows exactly how these work. There's an afferent side. There's an efferent side. Is there a ceiling effect? Well, probably there is. What's going to make another one superior to the two on the market? This was listed in these publications as in development. I couldn't really find any of these anymore. So I think that these references are probably old. PDE5 inhibitors in men, as I said, there's no reason why you can't use these either. Why do these work? Don't know. These are all the other possibilities. But is there going to be one that is more selective or better works than Tadalafil? I don't think so. Potassium channel openers haven't worked really because of side effects on heart and blood pressure and not very good clinical results. Calcium channel antagonists, really the same thing. You know, I call them great ideas that just didn't work for one reason or another. Prostanoid receptor antagonists, again, great idea that didn't work. Promising animal models, mediocre clinical results with a high incidence of adverse effects. New targets with positive results. Deloxetine, the drug for stress incontinence, actually gave surprisingly good results in women with overactive bladder, but there were too many adverse events. Nausea, that was the placebo for nausea. Dizziness, insomnia, fatigue. So basically that was dumped as an idea for deloxetine. Vitamin D antagonists, minimally positive clinically effects. Neurokinin receptor antagonists, again, nice idea. I'll take you through this one. Neurokinin-1 receptor antagonists. People use these for actually antiemetics in the hospital. They block capsaicin-induced detrusor overactivity. So neurokinin story, there was a drug called Arepitant that was used for chemotherapy-induced nausea that significantly improved OAB symptoms. Um, I put significantly in quotes because you might not consider it significantly. Unfortunately, that drug had a lot of issues with drug-drug interactions. Another drug was developed pretty similar. They compared it to toteridine. Toteridine was superior in all doses of the drug, and the drug was dropped. Um, GABA is the chief inhibitory compound in the central nervous system. There is a drug that's a selective modulator of this. You know, the usual story, promising effects in little furry animals, and the quote is further studies would be of interest. Um, purinergic possibilities. In the normal bladder, there's a minor contribution to contraction by ATP. In disease states, that changes to up to 50% of the contraction. And ATP basically is released, as Chris said, from the urothelium in response to filling. So it's a sensory neurotransmitter. And there are P2X3 receptors expressed on bladder afferent terminals. And also, if you make a knockout mice, basically for this receptor, you will see that you decrease frequency, 
you reduce peak pressure in response to filling, but you don't change the effect, you don't change the magnitude of emptying contraction. So wow, what a great idea. You decrease sensation, but don't disturb voluntary voiding. And these are from the little furry animals. Uh, basically, this is basically total volume, so you can fill it more. This was frequency, it decreases, but the amplitude of an emptying contraction doesn't go down. Uh, unfortunately, that drug, basically, you, you really haven't heard much about this. There was one publication that was back in 2015, actually, in the ICS. It was an abstract, and I haven't seen much of it since. Cannabinoids, boy, wouldn't that be great if you could use those for overactive bladder? Wow, we'd all take them regardless, right? Because we'd make up, hey, I got overactive bladder. I need that. Well, in reality, little clinical data. Um, this was a quote from a fairly good article. The evidence base is poor, more high-quality, well-designed, and adequately powered, and sampled studies are urgently needed to reach definitive conclusions. Urgency that are urgently needed, that was in 2017. Transient receptor modulation, these are receptors involved in nociception and mechanosensory transduction in various organs. And again, wow, same story. So it increases filling, but doesn't change the amplitude of an emptying contraction. In humans, this one actually produced hyperthermia, so it can't use it. This one was called a successful failure, okay? So successful failure means to me the operation worked, but the patient died, right? I mean, so basically this one's not used. And this was a great quote from a couple years ago. I don't think things have changed. In conclusion, TRP receptors are a reality that still needs an enormous amount of work and dedication before becoming therapeutically useful. And that may take more time than we anticipate at the moment. Opioid receptors, the mu receptor may modulate micturition, and here's one that was published. Uh, look what this is, oxybutynin added to an in vitro bath. This is this mu opioid receptor ligand, basically. Look what it does. And I haven't heard anything more of this, but it's a possibility. There are drugs that reduce fibrosis, let's say, in response to obstruction. So that may reduce <clears throat> the appearance of overactive bladder. Unfortunately, these drugs cause severe cardiovascular reactions and mortality in animals, so they were never used basically in, in humans. Other ideas basically are listed here. Um, again, they all start out with a pharmacologic rationale that's pretty good, but they never seemed, or they haven't seemed to advance you know, further. This is a new idea that Eric published on. You'll hear about it tomorrow. It involves injection uh, basically of a gene therapy plasma vector expressing the human big potassium channel alpha subunit. Um, the preliminary studies were very promising. Basically, if you want to read about this, this is a great article that was first authored by Carl Eric Anderson. Um, you know, this is the journal. So if you're interested in this, want to read about it, there'll be some phase two results presented tomorrow. In, in terms of the quick or the late-breaking abstract. So summary, you can do this. You can combine drugs, like Chris said. You can combine drugs with other form of treatments. You can use new variants of currently accepted principles. Try that. These are the new targets that are positive. But unfortunately, I think 
that the logical conclusion is that there are many old targets and some new targets and some promising animal data, but there's no new currently clinically successful breakthroughs that have been approved by the FDA. Thank you. Thank you uh, for uh, waiting until the uh, very end. Uh, we'll stay around to take some questions. I realize we went over. We, we tried to stay on time, but uh, do appreciate your patience uh, and uh, take any questions. <clears throat> Is this working? Um, just uh, my observation first uh, before I ask the question. I have been in practice for almost like 20 years. I have a very active urodynamic lab. And uh, I have, over the years, I've been involved in doing TERPs for obstruction-related overactive bladders. I've done PTNS, nerve stimulations. I was involved with Rick Schmidt for a million of those sacral nerve stimulators. But, you know, uh, my observation is that there are certain people who just have uh, structural or uh, functional uh, setup that they're going to have overactive bladder, and why those people do and why others don't. And uh, when I sometimes compare your dynamic findings, say somebody I did six years ago, and six years later, I certainly see deterioration no matter what they had done. They could have done nerve stimulators over the years, they could have done TERP, they could have done any kind of treatment. I see constant deterioration. The bladder size becomes smaller, overactivity is more, sensory urgency, and, uh, and their symptoms are worse. So, I mean, it seems like I go back to 30 years ago when I was a student in Edinburgh, that basically what I learned as a student that these people have their, their, their system upregulated. Uh, both chemically and structurally. And uh, all these treatments do not target on any of that. You know, gene therapy would be, and I appreciate uh, that article seemed like intriguing, but all the treatment targets are alleviating the symptoms. And none of this truly targets what the pathophysiology is underneath. And I just wonder if uh, anything in that direction we're doing, so. So it's more of a research question rather than a truly clinician question. Because in urology, everything we fix, this is something I don't think we can fix. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, say, <laughs> so Chris used to have a great slide that he took out this year, and it was the, the human and all the different things that, that contribute to the lower urinary tract symptoms. Like I said very early, the, the urinary tract is not like cheese and fine wine, right? So it, it, it doesn't get better with age. But also all of those comorbidities, that patient you did to Terp on six years ago is now six years older, right? right? right. So he's got, uh, Chris alluded to it, uh, he probably has some, some clinical neurologic disease that he didn't have six years ago, and maybe his diabetes is a little bit worse, and maybe he's a little fatter and a little metabolic syndrome. In addition, his, his bladder's contractility is not any better than it was six years ago. It's probably worse. Um, and and uh, all those other factors have changed. So to some degree, I agree with you 100%. None of these targets are, are addressing all of the things I just mentioned, and they're, and they're not addressing whatever other pathophysiology is happening that's causing those symptoms to get worse over time. And, and maybe the gene therapy will be something, but that's really also not targeting uh, a specific uh, etiology either. It's, it's sort of putting a patch on it. Chris, do you have anything to add? You raise a very valid point, and I, it always reminds me of a study reported in the Journal of Urology by Chalfin and Bradley, 
about 35 years ago where they injected lidocaine into the prostate and doing urodynamics before and after and the overactivity went away because the first thing you do with the TURP is to do a deaffrontation because the first thing you do is to cut out the urethelium within the prostate. And Paul Abrams has looked at that and I think it was 10 to 15 years after TURP, the instance of bladder overactivity was the same whether they had a TURP or not.